chapter 8, verses 26, and following all the way up to verse 40, the end of the chapter. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship him, was turning, seated in his chair, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like sheep he was led to, uh, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, Tus, and when he passed through the uh, through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip, we don't, when we think about the apostles, we think about the disciples, we don't generally jump necessarily to Philip. We think about Matthew and John and Luke and some of the other ones. Uh, so here we have one of the less, probably one of the less known disciples coming to the fore. Uh, one of the originals uh, that Jesus had appointed. One of the uh, unusual things about Philip is Philippos is not a Jewish name. It is a Greek name. So, you know, we might wonder why in the world this, this fellow, this, this guy that was called to be one of the disciples of Jesus, why he has a Greek name rather than a Hebrew name. And we can't really answer that question. Certainly some possibilities. Maybe he had Greek roots and he had converted to Judaism at some point. Or perhaps his mother or his father was Hebrew and the other was Greek or something like that. But again, we just, we just don't know. But it is kind of unusual that one of these guys, one of these original 12 apostles has a Greek name, not a Hebrew name. mentioned frequently in John's gospel, which we're going through now. Probably more here than anywhere else. But an angel of the Lord appears to Philip, and he says to him, Arise and go toward the south to the road that goes south to Gaza. 
described as a desert place. Now, I don't imagine there are too many people that when they feel like they're being called to the mission field, that they feel like they're being called to a desert to do it. <laughs> Deserts are noted for a lot of things, and one of those is they don't generally have a whole lot of people. So, you know, when we, when we start looking for places to go and evangelize, very often we're looking for, for places that are very highly populated or heavily populated, not remote areas in the, the middle of nowhere. Because that's where Philip is actually going. Gaza was one of the ancient towns of the Philistines on the Mediterranean coast. The only place it's mentioned in the New Testament is here, but it's mentioned 22 times in the Old Testament. Here we have God directing Philip through an angel. And we see here that Philip is faithful in doing what the angel of the Lord calls him to do. And he does it without hesitation. He doesn't say things like, Lord, I don't really, I've been to Gaza before and I really don't care to go back. Or, or, or Lord, I've got things here that I need to do. Need to do. There are pe- other people here that I'm witnessing to. And this, this, you're asking me to leave my ministry here and go somewhere else. I would imagine that the, the apostles were a lot more human like we are than we like to think. And I would imagine that probably some of those things went through Philip's mind. Couldn't I be used in a better way, in a better place? But nonetheless, he goes without hesitation. And when he's there, he encounters a, uh, an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had apparently been in Jerusalem worshiping, and he was on his way back to Ethiopia. No doubt about it, this was one of those divine appointments. God had set up this meeting at the very beginning of time. Not just on the day before. Not a last-minute thought on God's part. This has been part of his plan from the very beginning. He's been working out absolutely every detail up to that point to ensure that this meeting took place between these two at this exact time in history and in exactly this particular place. See, the Bible teaches us that God has foreordained everything that comes to pass. Everything that comes to pass. All things that come to be. And by his works of providence, he is making sure that they actually do. And he's using Philip in that process. And he uses you and I in that process too on a regular basis. And most of the time we're not even conscious of it I'm going to assume this morning that you understand what it means to be a eunuch not something most guys care to talk too much about (laughs) 
but you know what it means and you can understand why this was imposed upon certain people in certain points in history and whatever. For instance, the guards that uh, very often were uh, assigned to guarding the king's harem, that sort of thing. To prevent any hanky-panky from going on behind the king's back. So that these men would have no attraction, physical attraction, to the king's wife or wives or concubines. Those in his harem. This eunuch served under Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And he was entrusted with oversight of the queen's treasury. A very high position. In other words, he looked after the money matters for the queen. He's come a long way. We know he wasn't Jewish. He was, he was obviously a Gentile. But he was a Jewish proselyte. Somehow he had heard about the God of the Jews, and he worshipped the God of the Jews. Uh, as their crow flies, the distance between the Holy Land and Ethiopia is about 2,000 miles each way. Ethiopia is virtually due south of the Promised Land. And I think one of the most important things for us to glean from this in regard to this eunuch was it was extremely important for him to make this trek. If you had to go 2,000 miles, would you be here in church this morning? My point is this was something that was extremely important to him. It took a whole lot of time and effort for him just to go and visit Jerusalem. And he's on his way back to Ethiopia now. Some of you have heard me say this, maybe to the point you're sick and tired of hearing me. <laughs> but one of the things that struck Lori and I early on when we first went to Uganda was this, is, is we were there just a few days before we had the great privilege of participating in a Ugandan worship service. And we live in a culture where we gripe. We get upset if the service goes on more than an hour. You need to understand that in Uganda, the worship service goes on all morning. And there's lots of singing. It's not that we sing two or three or four or five songs. It's singing and singing and singing and singing. And there's preaching. And there may be more than one sermon preached in the same worship service. But some of you have heard this come from me, and that is this, is I would tell you this, and I, I've, told, I said that I've been saying this for the last almost 30 years, and I'd say the same thing to you right now. That it's not an easy trip to get from here to Uganda. You're talking about lots of hours on airplanes and lots of hours in airports. 
and then a lengthy travel by truck or car or whatever from Kampala all the way out to Fort Portal and that sort of thing. So it's not an easy trip to make. I mean, you see a lot of wonderful and beautiful things and, and, you know, along the way uh, and that sort of thing. But what I'm telling you this morning is it is worth every effort, every effort to get there, the cost in money, the cost in time, the cost in travel, the cost in everything for you to worship with your Christian brothers and sisters in Uganda just one time. Because you're talking about people on the average who have absolutely nothing, but they have Jesus, and they have Jesus sometimes it seems in a way that you and I just don't. He fills their heart. He fills their life. There is something very, very clearly that comes through in their worship, and that is a great sense of joy. So in this sense, I can kind of relate to him. It's well worth it to make the trek. To be a part of it. When we think of Africa, we think of this deep, dark, scary place. Justin has just made a few port calls in Africa. And I would imagine that, that he's come away from that looking at Africa maybe in a different light than he did before. It is a remarkable place full of remarkable people. But one of the things that's not that well known about Ethiopia is it's basically classified as a Christian country, and it has been for hundreds of years. In the 4th century A.D., King Izana of Ethiopia became a Christian. And ever since, Christianity has been the dominant religion of the Ethiopians. Today... 63% of Ethiopians say that Christianity is their religion. Can you imagine what the United States would be like if we could say the same thing? Where did it all start? Well, we don't know for certain, but it's a good chance that all of this is a result of the initial conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. that he went back to Ethiopia and he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Ethiopians. Let me say this to you this morning. God alone knows how many people have been impacted by your conversion. You may know of a few, but I would imagine that there are people 
that were impacted by your conversion and what has taken place in your life since then that you are completely and totally unaware of. Probably far more than you would ever think. Because it is literally impossible to live out your life for Christ without it impacting the lives of other people. You can't do that. Because none of us live our lives in a vacuum. We live in a community. Community that goes far beyond the doors of this church. And I just want to remind us this morning, what we do and what we don't do impacts the lives of other people, often in ways that we are completely oblivious to. And just remember that in these days when the Ethiopian eunuch, there was no praying breast. It wouldn't be around for hundreds of years later. He was reading a handwritten copy of Isaiah. Something that was very valuable. Something he had to pay money for. But let me tell you something. Out of all the books in the Old Testament, he could not have made a better choice. (laughs) The prophet Isaiah talks about Jesus more than any other of the prophets, more than any other of the Old Testament books. So if you ever have to recommend a, a, a book of the Old Testament to an unbeliever, you can't do any better than the book of Isaiah. Because it speaks very much about the coming Messiah. The eunuch could not have made a better choice. Philip ran to him and asked him, do you understand what you're reading? To which he responded, how can I unless someone guides me? We all need help. We do. We need help to come to a higher and greater understanding of the Word of God than we're going to come to on our own. That's why we have people like me. That's why we have teachers. Philip is quite able to clearly show that Jesus is the one of whom Isaiah is speaking specifically. When he writes, Who, like a sheep, 
He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him, for his life is taken away from the earth. A clear picture of Jesus, the innocent one. And beginning with that particular scripture, let me ask you something. If I just gave you Isaiah 53, could you teach people about Jesus, just Isaiah 53? This is where Philip starts. But, just like us, Philip has a whole lot more to draw from. Have you ever thought about this, that there's a sense in which we have a decided advantage over the people that were living in Philip's day? There are books all in this room that have the title on them, Holy Bible. You know, sometimes we think oppositely. We think, gosh, it would, have been, it would have been a lot easier if I lived during the days of Jesus or immediately after that to tell people about Christ because I had that own personal experience. Let's just remember that Philip only had the Old Testament. You and I have the Old and the New. And that gives us, in a sense, an advantage over even Philip. They're traveling along and they come to water. Just remember, this was in a desert area. You might come across water every now and then, but it really be water that was, there was enough of it to baptize somebody in, especially if you're talking about having to immerse them completely underwater. See, this is God's providence. God always provides what is needed, when it's needed, where it's needed. Always. So Philip baptizes the eunuch. Now let me just say this, that, uh, you know, baptism is one of those sacraments that God has given us. The Lord suffers the other one. And it's, in, it's designed to be a blessing to the church. But let me tell you something. There has been more controversy within the boundaries of the church over baptism over the generations than probably almost anything else. Something that Christ is intended to be a great blessing to the church has, in essence, been a dividing point very often in the church. Two questions. Number one, who should be baptized? A lot of people would say that only adults or maybe older children that make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, now they're ready to be baptized. They have to be able, you have to be old enough to make a credible profession of faith in Jesus to be bad, baptized. And there's, would you say there's a large percentage of Christians who believe that? 
Okay. We believe that believers and their children should also be baptized. Why? Because children are more circumcised. And we understand that baptism, in a sense, replaces the sacrament of circumcision. So you circumcise your children, baptize them. The other one is this, is what is the proper mode of baptism? In other words, how do you apply the water and how much water is necessary? Is complete immersion necessary or is sprinkling or pouring sufficient? Well, you know what our position is. Ours is the second. That complete immersion is not necessary. The strange thing is this, is this is one of the passages that is sometimes used to try to bolster the idea that baptism requires complete immersion. Simply because the passage says this, that Philip baptized the eunuch, and then they came up out of the water. It's the coming up out of the water that is used very often to try to argue for immersion as being the proper way of doing it, but you should be able to very clearly see a problem here already. It doesn't say that the eunuch came up out of the water. It says that they came up out of the water, that Philip and the eunuch came up out of the water. So what is the real proper understanding of this? And that is this. I would imagine, this is how I picture this, that the two of them went down in this body of water, whether it be a pond, a lake, or, 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 or a ditch, or whatever. It was someplace that was some water. We don't know how much water. We don't know if it's sufficient for them to completely immerse in it. But no one here believes that Philip went under the water with the eunuch. Do you? I believe this, that they walked down in the water, maybe to knee deep or waist deep or something like that, and Philip took water, cupped it in his hands, and poured it over the, the eunuch's head. But there are people, and let me just tell you something. I would say immersion is a legitimate baptism. I would say if someone's been immersed, you haven't been baptized, you need to be sprinkled. But you need to understand that there are a lot of people who believe if you have not been immersed, then you have not been baptized. After this baptism, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. Can you imagine that, watching somebody just go, Phew. That'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Maybe there's some people you'd like to see go, <laughs> The Spirit of the Lord carries Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. 
You see, the Lord still had much for Philip to do. The eunuch's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. On the other hand, Philip is. Later on in the book of Acts. First, the Lord carries, uh, carries him to uh, Asitas. Tus. Uh, it, was a, it was a Greco-Roman name for Ashdod, which was one of those Philistine cities. Well, we've talked about the Philistines just a little bit just recently, but another one of those Philistine cities located on the Mediterranean Sea just west of Jerusalem. He's only mentioned one more time in the book of Acts, and it comes way close to the end of the book. So we don't really know anything about Philip's ministry from this point on up to that point. He appears again in chapter 21, verse 8, where he's referred to as Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. End of story. The whole reason I bring this up is this was the beginning of the ministry of Philip, and it was not certainly the end of it. That God went ahead and he used this man in remarkable ways to bring the gospel to many, many people down through the years that followed. Eventually, Philip will be stoned to death and crucified. They stoned him first, then they crucified him. In a place called Phrygia. Not part of the promised land. Matter of fact, a good way from the promised land. It's part, uh, it's a, it was a region of, uh, it was Roman province in Asia Minor. Uh, very close to the location of the seven churches of Revelation where John would be. So why is that significant? It's significant because we understand this, that, that Philip took the Great Commission Seriously. That this was the beginning of ministry maybe for him in a way that it hadn't been before. Before that, his ministry was Jerusalem, in Jerusalem to Jewish people. But he leaves, just like Jesus had told him, told all of them to be faithful to the Great Commission, to go forth into the world. And he did that. Making disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded them. All of the apostles passed from this world over 2,000 years ago. But we need to understand something, that in their lifetime they accomplished something that is absolutely phenomenal, absolutely remarkable. No, they didn't carry the gospel to China, nor did they carry it to Russia or to the Philippine Islands. But they carried it to the end of the world as they knew it. 
By the time they all passed, the gospel had spread from Israel to Western Europe, to North and East Africa, and to Western Asia. And just remember, they didn't have the travel accommodations that we have today. It was either by foot, or if you're lucky, by donkey or horse. And we're talking about thousands of miles. The church in every age has actively engaged itself in the Great Commission. The goal of that Great Commission is the conversion of every soul that inhabits planet Earth in every point in history, in every place on the planet. That's the goal. At the same time, we know that some will not respond positively to the gospel, but there is always the hope that at least some will. That's why we do it. In A.D. 100, there is estimated that, uh, that there were about 360 people worldwide for every believer as far as populations go. Today, we live in a world where roughly 7.3 people, there is 7.3 people in the world for every believer. So what we're saying here is one out of seven or eight people is a Christian, or they, they, at least they profess Christianity. I mean, from that, we should be able to conclude that a whole a lot of work has been done through the generations. A lot has been accomplished. A lot. It's all because the church in every age has taken seriously the Great Commission, just like the apostles did. Considerable progress has been made through the generations. Let me just throw some statistics out to you. These are current things. American Christians spend 95% of offerings on home-based ministries. In other words, ministries that feed their church, ministries that benefit them in some way or another, or maybe their family in some way or another, that sort of thing. Here's another statistic. Over 160,000 Christians will be martyred this year in the world. A small city of people. Murdered. Just simply because they profess Christ and they follow him. Today. This is not 100 years ago. This is not 1,000 years ago. This is today, the day that we live in. In China today, which seems to be on fire for the gospel, even though it is one of the most oppressed nations in the whole world, Christianity is thriving in China, underground. They estimate there are 10,000 new converts every single day. 
in China. There's some sobering things, too. The average American gives only one penny a day to global missions. What can you buy for a penny? A penny's almost worthless. I can remember when you could. You could buy a piece of bubble gum or something. There's, you can't buy anything. Is there, really, seriously, is there anything at all you can buy for a penny anymore? Another disturbing thing, up to one-half of new missionaries do not serve a second term. Half of them that go on the mission field come home after their first tenure. Because let me tell you, it is not work for the faint-hearted. It is hard, heart-wrenching sometimes. Work. But... There's also nothing like watching the seed of Christianity being planted in one or two people and watching it spread. Knowing that you, in some way, have contributed to that process. The church in every age has actively engaged itself in the Great Commission. With a goal. And the goal is the conversion of every soul that inhabits planet Earth. At the same time, knowing full well that not all will respond positively to the gospel, but with the hope that many will. We are getting older, most of us. <laughs> Emily's not old yet, but. And let me tell you something. One of the things that you and I have to fight is this pervasive mentality that I work my life, I earn my keep, I paid my way, I provided for my family. I'm retired now, and therefore, my time is my own to do whatever I want to with whenever I want to do it with it. Do you understand that thought is anti-Christian? Our life has been completely bought and purchased by Jesus Christ who can call us to do whatever he wishes, whenever he wishes, with whomever he wishes. And we cannot tell him no. We are his. He has bought us. At an unbelievable cost.
We have the message the world desperately needs. The last 2,000 years, for the very Garden of Eden, it's the very message that people need to hear more than anything else. We simply cannot be silent. We simply cannot just sit and do nothing. We can't. And let me tell you something. If we do, it shows us a lot of things. And one of those is this, is our faith is very shallow. That we still think it's all about me. When in fact it isn't. It's all about him. It's all about that great commission. I hope there are people on your prayer list, and I hope you have a prayer list. And I hope you pray on a regular basis, not just for people that you know that are believers, that God would strengthen them and give them wisdom and this, that, and the other. But I hope with all of my heart that you have at least some people on your prayer list who are unbelievers that you are praying for their salvation regularly. And if you don't, I want to ask you why. Because if you don't, you don't understand the very basic ideas of your faith. That Christianity is not something we keep to ourselves. We share it. Let me tell you, the world out there today desperately needs to hear it. But the problem very, very often is this, is the church around them is silent. It's isolated itself from them. It doesn't want to have anything to do with them. It doesn't want to rub elbows with them. It certainly doesn't want to have a conversation with any of them. Please don't tell me that every person that is a friend of yours is a Christian. Because let me tell you, if, if that's what you say, you are not, I can tell you definitively, you are not being faithful to what Christ has called you to do. And let me tell you, it's very nice, it's very comfortable to surround yourself with other believers. It is. There's a comfort zone there, Right? And you don't want to go outside of it. And I can understand that. I don't either. But we can't not be faithful to our calling to make disciples. It applies to all of us. Not just one or two of us, to add every one of us.